Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. 708 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with producer Shaletta Brundage on a Saturday evening until 9 o'clock will be with you. This past week for the TV side, I did a story on the FDA's push to try and ban minors from getting hooked on vaping. And in the process of doing that, uh, some of these regulations, obviously, Minnesota already has laws barring the sale of uh, e-cigs to minors, but obviously kids are getting their hands on it. In the process, though, I did talk uh, with a the folks at a Hopkins vaping studio. It's actually called Vaping Studio. Uh, and they talked to me about the fact that there are a lot of people who are using e-cigs and vaping to get off cigarettes, that, that it, it kind of has a dual purpose here. And, and for those people, this is a, a, a huge advance because they're able to get off of uh, cigarettes, which obviously are so harmful to everybody's health. So this half hour, we're going to talk with uh, – the uh, manager of that studio, Josh Hassing, and we're also going to talk later about a tobacco with the tobacco intervention coordinator about some of the concerns they have when it comes to young people and vaping. First, we're going to start with Josh Hassing. Uh, Josh, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, listen, I certainly appreciated your time earlier this week. I, I think your story is one, you know, we hear a lot about vaping and it sounds like you feel that, that vaping for some people is getting too much of a bad name. Explain that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it comes down with vaping as it does with anything else. People who don't fully understand it or take the time to learn about it come up with their own conclusions. And I think that kind of puts a negative taste in everybody's mouth. All right. Well, um, well talk, tell us about your story because I think your story is one – that that's important and that matters also. Yeah, my my personal story with vaping was that I actually started smoking cigarettes when I was fourteen. Uh, like I told you during our interview in my store, uh, I wanted to see what the big deal was. Everybody said don't do it, so I instantly jumped at it when I found the chance, and I ended up getting addicted to cigarettes. I actually tried to quit several times and uh, failed every single time. And then when vaping became uh, uh, when vaping came into my life, I kind of went back and forth on it, but it actually ended up did help me quit cigarettes completely. I do not use cigarettes of any kind anymore. And do you use uh, you know, the vaping products can have nicotine in them or they cannot have nicotine? They're using nicotine in the ones, the vaping that you use. I use, I still use nicotine. Yes. Right. But, but for you, you're not smoking. And how are you feeling? I actually feel much better. I don't get winded going up and down stairs. I don't stink which has helped my self-esteem tremendously. Um, that was always a worry going into job interviews or going on dates or something like that. It's just how bad do I smell? And now I, I mean, I don't go on dates anymore. I'm in a relationship, but I, you know, I have the self-esteem. I physically feel better and I do feel like I'm making a better choice for my health with vaping versus smoking. Is, is your ability to quit cigarettes uh, because of vaping, is that a story you hear a lot in your shop? 
Yes, constantly. Um, at least a dozen times a day, we hear somebody walking in saying that, you know, they finally found something that helped. We have people that have tried the gum, the patches, Chantix. We've actually heard quite a few horror stories about that one. But, uh, I mean, a lot of people are just very grateful that this uh, this method was available to them. Right. And in terms of, of the, the push for young people, uh, what, what I think what you told me is that some of these sort of the, the bubble gum and fruit flavors and bakery flavors are actually popular with adults. Yeah. And actually, and, after I mean, our interview, I, yeah. I got a little bit curious. So I ran some numbers on our uh, members who are active in our loyalty program, which is basically anybody who's been in the past year. Um, and I did find out that in the past, uh, month to date so far, so just a couple of weeks now, 59% of our liquid sales have been fruit flavors. And um, of our active customers, which is 1,853, 83% of those customers are actually 21 or older. So we are still seeing a majority of fruit flavors being sold among people who would be considered you know, more mature adults, 21 plus. Right. And, and under Minnesota law, and it's different in different places, in Hopkins, uh, you can purchase e-cigs legally at the age of 18, right? Yeah, e-cigs, tobacco, or, right. pretty much anything. Where some communities have moved that up to 21, uh, sort of a patchwork yeah. of all kinds of different communities. One of those that has moved it up to 21 is, is Minneapolis. But um, in terms of, of what you're saying, so, so and, and you say you card people. If somebody comes in, you, they get carded at your shop. Yeah, absolutely. We don't make any exceptions to that. I mean, we have customers that just happen to look young, but they've been coming to us for months, and I just haven't remembered them yet. They still get carded every single time. Right. Um, in terms of the regulations uh, that are being proposed for e-cigs, both from the federal government and also local governments, do you worry that they might go too far? I mean, that is a worry. I do believe that regulation is necessary. You can't just let anybody do anything, uh, especially with something that, you know, contains nicotine, because nicotine in high dosages can be harmful. But I do worry that they are going to go too far and uh, basically take away the ability for somebody to quit smoking that hasn't been able to quit under traditional terms. Right. And and like a lot of people, I think most of the people I know who do smoke cigarettes did start when they were teenagers. I mean, that that's sort of a universal thing, I think, for many, many people. And, and so I'm sure you hear that kind of a story as well, oftentimes, too. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, listen. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's no, it's, there's, you know, no way around the fact that it's been proven that uh, most people who smoke started before the age of 18. Right. And, and and that's what we're going to talk just in a few minutes with uh, somebody who's a tobacco intervention coordinator with the Linus Health Penny George Institute. Um, we're going to talk to them about the fact that the, the concern, I guess, is that young people younger than 18 are being are able to get their hands on e-cigs. A lot of it, I think, is through the Internet, and, and they're getting mm-hmm. hooked that way. They're not starting with cigarettes. They're starting with the e-cigs, but, but – you're coming from at it from a very different perspective that's an important perspective, I think, for people to listen to because it, it has gotten you off of cigarettes, which is something that you tried and, and that many people try many, many times to try and you know give up, and, and it's obviously very difficult. Oh, yeah. Nicotine is one of the most addictive substances in the world out there that's legalized anyway. All right. Well, listen, Josh, I thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And again, you're the GM of the, the vaping studio, which is right in downtown Hopkins. Uh, we certainly appreciate your time earlier this week and again tonight. Yeah, not a problem. Okay, great. Thanks, Josh. 
All right. When we come back, we will chat with uh, a lady who is the – her title is the Tobacco Intervention Coordinator with Alina House Penny George Institute for Health and Healing. Uh, we're going to talk to her about vaping, but I also want to ask her about Josh's story. Here's a guy who said he tried for years to get off cigarettes and couldn't do it. The one thing that worked for him is vaping. Uh, isn't that a better option? But what is the risk, though, for young people getting hooked initially on vaping? Uh, so keep it here. News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 719 in the Twin Cities. We're down to 22 degrees. Uh, we are talking about vaping. We just heard from Josh Hessing, who is the GM of the vaping studio in Hopkins. It's a shop in Hopkins that sells vaping products. And you heard his story that it was vaping and e-cigarettes that allowed him to actually quit real cigarettes. Obviously, a lot of concerns about the effects of vaping itself and especially amongst young people who are starting out vaping now. Many kids now, instead of turning to cigarettes as they have for generations, are now starting with e-cigs. And that's why the FDA is working on trying to tighten regulations and tighten places where this can be sold uh, to help regulate and make sure the kids are not getting their hands on these e-cigarette products. Karina DeLuzio is a tobacco intervention coordinator with Alina Health's Penny George Institute for Health and Healing. And she joins us now. Karina, am I saying your last name correctly? <laughs> Very close. It's actually DeLuzio. DeLuzio. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Karina, and it's Karina. I'm saying that correctly, right? You sure are. Okay. Yes. <laughs> all right. L- let me ask you, um, what you know from where you sit? What are your concerns? And and for people who are you know in in the field that you're in, what are the concerns about vaping? Well, we've seen vaping evolve very very rapidly over a very short period of time, and um, some of the main concerns are the fact that um, that the chemicals that are in vaping they're not just nicotine, and nicotine itself is a concern. So, in, and I'll I'll address that in a moment, but. There are so many other chemicals that are wrapped up in the delivery and in the vaporization of the um, of the juice of of the um, uh, basically of any of the chem- of the component that's inside of it um, that the chemi- those chemicals themselves are not safe and there are known carcinogens you know chemicals that cause cancer along inside of that right and that's um, and there's a lot of research that's going on right now on that very topic uh you know and and it's it's the delivery system on the regular cigarettes that's that's really some of the bad so the worst part about the cigarette but you kind of wonder if this is sort of in in 10 or 15 years how much more we'll know on this topic because as you said this has kind of exploded on us Mm -hmm. it really has i mean one could i suppose almost compare it to margarine for a long time, you know, doctors said, oh, don't eat butter. It's bad for you. Let's eat margarine instead. It's so much better. And it took time for us to figure out not only is it really not okay, but it's actually trans fats are even worse than saturated fats. So, I mean, that's, that's a very loose example, but I, I do want to illustrate the fact that it, it does take time for these chemicals to have an effect on the human body for us to really fully understand exactly how harmful they can be. So for people to just kind of take it as a, oh, sure, why not? It's got to be better than cigarettes. It's not necessarily a very wise decision when we're looking at lesser harm. You know, e-cigs, vapes, any kinds of electronic delivery system, is um, they are considered a tobacco product. So when people say, oh, I'm, I'm not smoking anymore, I'm vaping instead, you know, I, it allowed me to quit. 
well, you're basically, you're using one tobacco product to switch over to another tobacco product. That's kind of similar as to when people say, oh, I no longer smoke cigarettes, but instead I chew smokeless tobacco. Well, right. it still affects your body. It's, right. it's still tobacco. But but for those who, who, who really have struggled to quit cigarettes and because and, it, it it's so difficult and mm-hmm. you know we just heard josh's story uh he talked about how how hard it was for him it was only through vaping and i hear what you're saying that he's just switching one product for another but he says mm-hmm. he feels better uh he's not winded uh the way you know smokers understand what i'm talking about he's not winded anymore um he he, he there's not that tobacco smell all over his hair and his clothes and mm-hmm. where he lives. Sure. Uh, so so I think for, for many people, they see it as a step in the right direction, or would you not go that far? Um, I don't know that I would go that far. I do really want to stress that I really fully acknowledge how difficult it is to quit. Um, and, and so when I'm working with my patients, when I'm working with my clients, I don't want to minimize the struggle that people are up against when they're trying to quit tobacco. And I, I also really applaud the ingenuity, the creativity, and the, um, the desperation that a lot of people feel when they're, you know, kind of like, I'll try anything. So right. switching to an e-cig, I, I can really appreciate where they're coming from. Um, but, you know, back to my smokeless example, if someone was smoking cigarettes and then they switched to chew, they probably aren't going to feel as winded. They probably aren't going to have a big cough anymore. They're not going to smell like smoke anymore, but it's still poisoning their body. So, How about the appeal to young people? Because this is something that has really taken off with people who are underage. And I know that there are a lot of responsible shops out there um, you know, where, where people are carted. I know that, that Minnesota has laws on the books that, that Minnesota, many communities have actually upped the age for e-cigarettes and tobacco products to 21. Minneapolis is one of the cities that's done that. Yet mm-hmm. it, it's clear that, that kids under 18, and we're talking way under 18, are getting their hands on these products. Very much. And that's really the, the big, the hugest concern at this point. And so um, the the biggest problem is, Again, now, now I, I'm not not even going to consider those other chemicals that kids are getting. But nicotine, when when delivered to children, which um, you know, kids under the age of 18, under the age of 21, they still have adolescent brains, and um, nicotine becomes even more addictive um, when used at an earlier age. It changes the changes the physiology of the brain, so the way that the brain is constructed. Um, it, can cause different sorts of damage. And so when our children, I mean, there's a reason why we have a law, don't smoke tobacco unless you're, you know, you know, legal age of 18 or 21 and over. Um, and so for kids to be using these kinds of products at such a young age, it, it carries many more long-term um, problems along with it. And then also it's been proven that kids who use e-cigs, now it's, it's considered a gateway tool because um, the rate of kids starting to smoke again, smoke normal cigarettes, is now going up as well. Okay. So, so you're saying actually the reverse can happen because we heard from, from Josh who was saying, you know, people who smoke regular cigarettes are using uh, e-cigs as a tool to get off the regular cigarettes. You're saying that for young people, they start with e-cigarettes and then they switch over to cigarettes. They very much do. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's a part of the enormous rising concern. And also, you know, kids, they don't typically know to ask the right questions. And, um, you know, like the like with Juul, 
um, the the pods that they use. Um, they you know one one pod you know it, it contains enough nicotine to roughly equivalent be equivalent to about a pack a day, and lots of high schoolers right now are be, are using between one and three pods a day. Right. So, and Juul is one of the most know, popular form of e-cigs out there. I mean, it's extremely yeah. popular. Uh, you know, one of the things, uh, you know, uh, all these stores have regulations about who they can sell to and the age. And, and you know, I've seen I've seen people get carded. What about the Internet? I mean, is that where most most people or most kids get, are getting this on the Internet? I'm sure that there are so many different ways that kids get them, yeah. you know, anything from, I mean, yes, there's always ways to get them on the internet, but right. it's also from older siblings, older friends, um, you know, anyone who's willing to go the extra mile and earn a few bucks on the side. So yeah, there's lots of ways to get them. Yeah. What would you um, tell and, parents? Um, right now, you know, a lot of parents have this feeling that it's harmless um, that it's, you know, oh gosh, well, at least they're not doing real drugs kind of thing. Um, I would want to pose to them, you know, hey, it, it's your kid. You're wanting to protect them against anything that is going to hurt their health. And we know that this does hurt their health. We know that. And um, not only that, but the kids who are getting addicted to these are getting addicted a lot faster than they would even to regular um, I mean, the, the amounts of nicotine that kids are getting from this are far more than they would be getting from cigarettes. Most 14-year-olds are not smoking three packs a day. Um, and so, you know, but they can be getting that equivalent with a with a Juul or with other forms of, of um, ENDS products. So, um, you know, watching your kid get so un- unbelievably addicted to any chemical, I think would be disturbing for any parent. Oh, I think it is. And I think that's why educators and, and parents and a lot of people are concerned. Uh, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we certainly appreciate uh, your perspective. Uh, Karina Deluzio, uh, Tobacco Intervention Coordinator at Alina Health Penny George Institute for Health and Healing. Thank you so much for your perspective this evening. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Right, absolutely. All right. So uh, vaping, uh, it's big and it is growing in popularity and obviously a lot of concerns about young people getting their hands on these products. But you listen to other folks and say, well, this is helping them quit uh, regular cigarettes. It obviously will continue. All right, folks, um, we do have to take a break. Need to give you some weather. It is chilly out there. It really feels like winter. Um, and I'll give you the weather. I'll give you the Thanksgiving forecast, the travel forecast, which isn't that bad. I have to say, for Thanksgiving, obviously coming up on Thursday. And then when we come back, uh, we'll be joined by somebody who is doing research about the state of memory loss and and dementia, obviously a problem that affects so many people. What we know, what are some of the new frontiers, perhaps what are some of the new treatments, uh, what are some of the ways that people can deal with this issue because so many people are confronted with a loved one who has memory loss or has dementia. Uh, and it certainly is a growing problem as our overall our population continues to age. All right, folks, uh, keep it here. News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 7.35 in the Twin Cities. Hope you are staying warm this evening. As I just said, we're going down to 8 degrees and producer Shaletta Brundage and I are kind of bundled up in the studio because it feels like it's pretty frosty in here. Uh, but that, that keeps us on our toes, doesn't it, Shaletta? All right. Well, listen, this is this is a fascinating effort uh, that is going on uh, with the University of Minnesota professor uh, who is in the school, uh, the U of M's public school of public health. 
Uh, Professor Joseph Gogler, uh, who he holds an endowed chair in long-term care and aging at the U of M, and he says he hopes to visit all 87 counties in the state, a statewide tour to bring information on Alzheimer's disease to Minnesotans. And Professor Gogler is joining us right now. Professor, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, listen, we've got a lot of people in a lot of counties uh, listening to us right now. Tell us about this project because this is something uh, that I just came across uh, in the Star Tribune, and I think it's just a fascinating idea that what you're trying to do. Tell us about it. Well, I've, I've always felt that my work, the research I do and my team does at the University of Minnesota in trying to find innovative ways to help support people living with dementia and their families is so often inspired most directly when we have and engage uh, in a very robust way with uh, people themselves who are, are living with dementia, their family caregivers, professionals, hearing about what their lived experiences are. Because then that really helps us identify and better understand what are some of the trends in terms of what kind of services and supports are currently out there. And perhaps most importantly, what are some of the gaps and gaps we can try to fill? And, uh, you know, I've been doing research in dementia and long-term care for, for probably around the past 20 years or so. And I've been at the University of Minnesota since 2005. And around 10 years ago, I had the opportunity um, in partnership with some of the area agencies on aging, more in the northern part of the state, to visit communities there. Um, I went up to War Road, Rosso, uh, Grand Rapids, uh, you name it, just all throughout the northern part of the state. And, you know, when I would go up there, I would talk not only to care professionals and providing basic information and education and resources about dementia, but then also have an opportunity to talk with families as well. And, I, and when I look back on my work, I really think that had a, a profound influence in, in how we position our research. Um, and more importantly, when we do our research, how we share that information with, again, the families and people living with dementia who go through this every day. Right. Uh, and your, your listening tour, um, one of the first sessions will be in Wabasha and Zumbro Falls. How can people find out uh, you know, where you're going to be so they can maybe meet with you or listen to what you have to say? Yeah, so we were in uh, Wabasha last Thursday. Oh, okay. Um, and it went really great. And so basically how the, tri- uh, the trip was, we, we visited, I visited Wabasha itself, St. Elizabeth's Hospital. We had a great turnout, around 50 people there. Um, again, the talk itself was on the basics of Alzheimer's and dementia and resources and supports for people living with it or those who care for people living with dementia. Um, then I actually traveled to Pine Island. Um, uh, there was a really interesting memory cafe, it's called, which is just a group of people um, uh, with memory loss and their care partners and where they kind of meet regularly in, in a really non-threatening environment. And they can talk about their experiences, uh, uh, share activities and such. Wow. And I had a chance to talk with them. And then my day concluded in Zumbro Falls at the VFW that evening. Okay. And so... Really, what we try to do when promoting the talks is roughly a month or so before, even even longer than that, before I'll travel to a county, I'll reach out to the local area agency on aging, uh, the local uh, county senior service office, um, whoever's, whoever's uh, in, in charge of that, as well as any other community resources I might be aware of, to let them know I'll be coming to coordinate dates, coordinate locations, um, and really try to maximize the reach we have when I visit each county. And I think the talks will more or less follow that same structure. Well, we'll have a talk 
uh, probably in the late morning, early afternoon, but then also one in the evening too. And, and the reason why there's the evening talks is uh, for, for example, adult child caregivers who might not be able to make it during the day if they're working, they have the opportunity to be there and attend an evening presentation too. And where um, where are you headed next? Because I, I misread that. Um, where, where can people find you next, or, or yeah. is there a, a list of places you're going to be? Well, yeah. I, I think. I mean, this, this this affects so many people. I mean, the, the numbers here: it, nearly 100,000 Minnesotans are living with Alzheimer's, and another 250,000 are involved in the care of their loved ones. And, and this is something that that's hitting hard in my own family right now because my husband is is very much involved with the care of his mother, his own mother, who is suffering from this. And, and I, I know that there are so many people out there listening who are saying. Me too. This this is hitting our family. Right. And so, you know, in part because of that, because it is so widespread, uh, we, we took a very, I mean, we took a very, I guess, scientific approach where we just more or less randomly assigned the counties um, in, in kind of clusters. And so Wabasha ended up being the first county we randomly picked. Um, and so the next county that I'll be visiting um, is going to be Itasca. Um, and that's going to be in Jan- mid, probably late January sometime. We're still finalizing the dates. Um, and, and, and I already have cheated a little bit in that we had this random assignment. But one of the reasons why okay. rather than later was the uh, local uh, police chief there reached out to me after reading the Star Tribune article saying, you know, I think our officers and first responders would really um, like to hear more about uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And that really intrigued me, too. I mean, I have not presented in front of a first responder audience, at least one that's almost wholly comprised of first responders. And so, wow! I mean, that's that's something that you don't think about, you, but but you yeah. know, because here here are these first responders trying to do their job, and they're coming upon somebody they don't know, and are they dealing with somebody who's potentially a threat to them or or to others, or is this somebody with dementia? And and how how can you help tell? You know, in a split second, these first responders often have to make decisions. Yeah, and I think in in perhaps rural towns, it, the problem might be compounded. Um, particularly if you say you have um, older individuals who might be living maybe uh, alone, um, maybe in in more geographically isolated places. Again, I, I would imagine for first responders that would make the, make it even more complicated. So, I mean, I find this is it, it's exciting and fascinating. I will learn a lot when I go out there, and at the same time, I'll try to put together and craft a special kind of educational session when I go up to uh, Grand Rapids slash Itasca County. And uh, but, like you said, it it shows that. Uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. Certainly, many of us in our families are are, are grappling with these challenges. Right. But at the same time, it it is truly a community disease, a community issue. Um, and I, maybe disease is not quite the right term, but a community issue where you have multiple levels of a community having to to deal with it. Right. And and some of some of the figures, uh, you know, on, on terms of the urban and rural divide, we talk about this, but. Um, according to this article in the Star Tribune, 32% of Minnesotans in urban a- areas are age 50 and older. That number rises to 41% in small towns, and it rises even more to 44% in rural areas of the state. So the rural areas where people are more spread out, where they might be living alone or, or further away from a healthcare center, people tend to be even older there. Yeah, and we know the greatest, uh, probably the most consistent risk factor for dementia is age. 
um, where roughly 13% of people or so over the age of 65 um, are at uh, elevated risk for dementia. But that number jumps to around a third for those over the age of 85. So you, you take that and, and uh, apply that to the numbers you just mentioned. Again, clearly, on a per capita basis, it's an issue that more likely than not is one of uh, great importance to rural communities. Right. In, in ter- we're chatting with uh, Professor Goggler, who is from the University of Minnesota, the uh, chair of public health. Uh, you, you've done this research for so long. Is there anything that, that you have found that helps stave off dementia? Uh, I mean, is there anything in terms of lifestyle or is it just sort of all genetics? Yeah, well, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, that's a common question in terms of the genetic role of Alzheimer's disease. We do know, um, you know, genetics play an important part in the onset of dementia, but it's not causal. And uh, certainly for the, the more the more commonly common form of Alzheimer's disease, which is called it, it's called late onset Alzheimer's disease, but that's really the form of Alzheimer's disease that occurs in probably 95 percent or so of the cases. Genetics do play a role. But there, it is likely a, co- a combination of not just genetics, but a variety of lifestyle factors as well. Um, you know, I, I read a paper that came out, a really, really impressive piece of scholarship in the Lancet Neurology in 2017. It was an international uh, team of researchers, and they were putting together a consensus statement on what do we know, what does the scientific evidence tell us about how dementia can be prevented. And they they developed this really interesting life course model where they actually looked at potential predictors of dementia, not just as we get older, but really throughout the life course. And they tried to kind of give give the reader a sense of, of what, proportion of dementia could be accounted for by lifestyle factors. And through their their synthesis of evidence, they came up with a number of roughly 32% of the prevalence of dementia could be accounted for by lifestyle factors. And what are those? Um, in early life course, it's thought education plays an important role. Now, education really? can, be, can be a proxy for a lot of things. At one level, you would think, you know, education might be, might be linked to um, neurological development, a more healthy neurological development. But then also education is a proxy for other things like socioeconomic status and such. But as one kind of traverses the life course, um, there are other factors, lifestyle factors, that are thought to play a role in dementia. Um, many of them are common that you would expect, uh, often linked to heart health, obesity, diabetes, um, those types of factors. So certainly engaging in healthy, regular heart management, management of cardiovascular risk conditions is thought to play at least a partial role in, in helping to perhaps delay the onset of dementia to some extent. One really? interesting factor this study found, um, and it'd be interesting to see if this continues to emerge in later research, is, is hearing loss where in midlife or, you know, as one gets older, hearing loss is thought to have a link of some kind to dementia, um, which I thought was interesting. But at the same time... I, I've never I, heard never heard yeah. of that. Yeah, it's, that... Interest, it, it's an interesting factor. And, you know, again, this was the first large-scale study where I saw that, that brought out in such kind of stunning fashion. But um, if you think about it, there is kind of a plausible link in that if someone, uh, say, is experiencing hearing loss, Maybe it's getting harder for that person to remain as socially engaged. We know social engagement has links to brain health. Um, it could be linked to other types of factors, which then in turn might again expedite the onset of dementia. So you kind of see how fascinating the study of dementia is in that, um, you know, it, it's really in all likelihood there are probably multiple complex pathways to dementia. That being said, there are things we can do in our life. Um, 
and, and really, I don't think they're anything very surprising to most people um, in terms of uh, proper heart health. Uh, you know, regular exercise, uh, certainly remaining socially engaged, et cetera. All right. Professor Goggler, we have to, this is a fascinating conversation. We have to take a quick break, but I'd like to ask you some more questions about, you know, what people should know, uh, the differences between dementia and, and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so keep it right here, folks. Uh, more with Professor Goggler after this. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Esme Murphy, along with Professor Gogler, Joseph Gogler from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. He is hoping to visit all 87 counties in the state as part of his effort and his research on dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, let me ask you, what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's? Yeah, what, that's a that's usually probably one of the first questions that always come up when I give uh, you know these presentations to different communities. So, so dementia can be thought of as a syndrome um, of uh, you know a, a impairment in cognition um, that in, that uh, that affects someone's ability to uh, live independently or to engage in routine activities of daily living. Now, the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease is Alzheimer's disease is a type or cause of dementia, is the most common cause of dementia, but it's not the only cause. Um, there are other causes of dementia, such as vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, a Lewy body disease, and, you know, several other types of progressive uh, uh, uh progressive uh, disorders, neurological disorders. In some cases, there could be causes of dementia, rarely, but sometimes they're actually reversible. Could be, for example, related to uh, reactions to taking multiple medications, which might mimic uh, some of the symptoms of dementia. Depression can sometimes mimic uh, some of the symptoms of of dementia as well. And those can be reversed in some cases? Yeah, well, like certainly depression, um, certainly uh, acute problems, uh, maybe sometimes related to metabolism, for example. But most of the causes of dementia, really the, the overwhelming majority, are not reversible. Right. And, and can they be slowed? You know, that's uh, the topic of some debate in the scientific literature. Uh, there's There's belief that they potentially can be. I mean... Certainly, the first line, the first order of treatment are often uh, pharmacological ones, uh, Namenda, Aricept, etc. And, you know, the literature varies in terms of how effective these, these drugs might be. I think it's best to categorize, you know, to characterize their effectiveness as moderate at best and probably for a limited period of time. Um, but that being said, they, they do seem to show some effect in helping to manage the symptoms of, of, of dementia and help to some, to some degree. There has been, I think, uh, even greater interest in other types of treatments, for example, like exercise. Um, exercise seems to have a promising uh, role not only in, in potentially being protective against dementia, but even for those that have dementia, potentially slowing it. So, I mean, that, that, those of that and, you know, some other types of non-pharmacological approaches have been uh, receiving more and more attention. Okay. Is there a misconception that you feel that's out there? Or what do you think is the biggest misconception about this? Field? I think the biggest misconception uh, is that you have Alzheimer's as a death sentence. 
because uh, certainly when someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, it, it, it's not a positive thing in it by, by any stretch. Um, but, but that being said, I think that stigma uh, influences not just people themselves who might be frightened to get a diagnosis, but it might actually affect people who may be caring for them, not only family members, but even maybe primary care providers or other health care providers, where the thought is, you have Alzheimer's, there's nothing really left I can do for you. I can't cure this. When, in fact, there are things that people can do to still maintain as positive a quality of life that is uh, reasonable um, and, and to be expected in, in the context of a, of a progressive dementia. Um, and, you know, knowing that... And are, are some of those things, some of the things you've been talking about, staying active, uh, exercise, continuing human interaction, that, that kind of thing? Exactly. I mean, I, th- I think it's all, it, it is all of those things. It's not I think it's, it is all of those things. Um, but maybe making modifications to simplify, um, to allow someone who has memory loss to to still be successful in aspects of their life, but again within reason and in a way that can that that recognizes uh, some of their challenges, if that makes sense. Versus saying you are on a path of decline, you know, you, all you can expect now is loss, and you know your voice really then one's voice isn't really heard anymore. And I think in, in, you know certainly in other countries there's been a major major movement for people living with dementia to have their voices heard, to tell healthcare providers, to certainly tell researchers that. You know, we are still here, and uh, you need to better understand our experiences in order to, wow. to, to arrange care that's better for us. Right. And I think it's the same thing here in the U.S., and, and it certainly is the same thing in Minnesota. Well, obviously, that's a part of what you're doing, uh, Professor Joseph Gogler. Uh, thank you so much. This has really been a, a fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, we certainly appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much, Ms. Murphy. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. All right, folks, keep it here News Radio 830 WCCO. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.